everybody, and welcome to a Monday morning, Monday afternoon, maybe some other time when you're listening to this edition of the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Joining me is a man whose entire existence, I have to believe, has been building up to the Premier League mega event if it were to happen. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay-Tay. How are you doing this very fine day? Are you looking forward to Premier League mega event? I mean, a- as a person who will not be uh, like quarantined with a bunch of my teammates for like months at a time by myself, uh, yes, I am. I am. I'm quarantined at home where I can just enjoy that from the television if and when it uh, were to happen. Yeah, well, apparently you've got something else apart from Tiger King coming to your screens very soon. I'm only two and a half episodes in, by the way, and I'm intrigued by that show, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so this plan for the Premier League, mm-hmm. Taylor. Yes. Uh, the Independent on Sunday evening, uh, Miguel Delaney thereof, broke a story that all remaining 92 matches will be televised, and there'll be some kind of sort of shut away behind closed door situation. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it, Taylor? Not so much, no. Because, I mean, to, to do that, it requires, uh, play- I, I'm going to assume players to agree to it because it would be a little bit of a different scenario, but it requires getting everybody together, but also keeping them quarantined, but also keeping them isolated, but bringing a bunch of Premier League teams together to kind of cooperate and compete in closed door settings with like only essential personnel around you wouldn't have that sort of situation you sometimes have where it's closed doors but then you hear like a hundred people cheering in the background it would be closed doors closed doors uh which could be interesting but could also be very strange and lead to a lot of injuries and fatigue and uh crammed in schedules but i think it's probably the best of a bad scenario given what the premier league are facing both in terms of coronavirus in general but then the ensuing fallout from a financial standpoint yeah, definitely. And the idea here is that all the teams are sort of isolated either in one or two locations like London or the Midlands and all the games are played in one or two locations and all the players are in one or two hotels. So they're sort of shut off from the rest of the world and their job is just to entertain us. And there is sort of apparently there's government backing for this in the UK because it would lift the spirits of the nation if everyone's trapped in. If they had 92 games in the Premier League uh, you know, televised coming, they'd be very, very happy with that. And I can see the logic of it. But it does sound like a tall order, doesn't it? Especially since I believe the Midlands were one of like the worst hit by coronavirus at least a few weeks ago. That may well have changed. Everything has mm. changed, so who knows? But like, the, uh, like what I do like the idea of then of if they're choosing the Midlands is not playing it at Molyneux or something like that or the Hawthorns, but playing it instead at like an actual just field in the middle of nowhere, and they've set up like a facility around it so nobody can get in. It really is this like quarantined zone where they're just playing in a regular field, and that's how it is. I'm sure they'll end up playing in a vacant stadium. But somehow the idea of, like, it reminds me of, like, a Toronto FC2 game. I know, Ryan, that that will resonate strongly with you. But when we were doing the (laughs) Richmond Kickers in USL League One, their games are played at, like, what looks sort of like a stadium. It's a training stadium, I think, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, You can see the Toronto skyline very distantly off in the background. But there's, like, eight people in the stands. That's kind of what I want to see. And then that way you can hear all the Premier League players screaming at each other. We finally get to know what languages they're yelling at each other and how often they're cursing when they don't get the ball they want. <laughs> yeah, fun indeed. Well, instead of playing it in the Midlands or London, I had a bit of a brainwave about mm-hmm. this, Taylor. Oh boy. When I went to Singapore many years ago, in the marina, they had like this little island with a soccer field on it. And it had no f- <laughs> they had no fences around uh-huh. it or anything. So basically if you put the ball out of the play, you're going for a swim. Yeah. But uh what if we did Yar Soccer Island off the coast of the UK somewhere? Maybe we'll launch it from Southampton. As uh, people have read about the Titanic, know that everything that's launched from Southampton uh-huh. is a success. So we'll launch it from there. And then sort of look, a mile off the coast, international waters, there's not even any laws. VAR doesn't count. 
<laughs> what do you think? Uh, I like that you're pitching a like Sealand meets pirate radio meets soccer sort of situation. And, I, and I'm into it. I'm into it, to be honest. Especially since we know the cruise industry is taking a big hit. Maybe you convert those cruise ships to floating soccer pitches. Yeah. And then you have, you have the rooms ready to go, hopefully sanitized. But then they're ready to go. You put a field on top. I mean, what more do you need? I like this floating soccer armada. And really, it does make the long-term goal of the Premier League of having games played, the 39th game and games played in other countries. You could just literally play a game, uh, then you pack up on the ship, uh, if if and when normalcy resumes. You play a game, you pack up on the ship, you play like a midweek game in the middle of the Atlantic, and then you play your weekend game like in Miami, and then you return home, and <laughs> you don't even have to like fly and deal with that stuff. I think this is a genius idea, Ryan Bailey, and I think you should trademark it right now. I will, and I probably contributed to the downfall of soccer in general if this does go ahead. You but certainly have. The, the actual idea here of sort of a TV mega event, I do love it because I think it will lift people's spirits. I want to see some games sooner rather than later. But part of me thinks, logistically, it will mm-hmm. be incredibly hard to pull off. And I could see the arguments that will come from it. Let's say West Ham end up getting relegated, mm-hmm. uh, having played on Yara Soccer Island yeah. uh, all their games with no fans. I think they'd say, well, hang on, we had a completely unfair you know, a, a disadvantage here because we didn't have any of our home support, which is very famous for being <laughs> 400 yards away from the field anyway. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, could you see that kind of argument happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think no matter what, there will be complaints. But I do think, uh, to circle back to the beginning of this, I do think they'll have to do something because, uh, as you shared with me, there's a tweet from Alex Miller, Alex Miller 73 on Twitter, the Premier League faces losses of 1.2 billion pounds if the season is canceled compared to 169 million year, uh, pounds if games are played behind closed doors. And those are very different numbers. And I think that right there will be uh, a very determining factor in what the Premier League do. And and so I think it will be like maybe they will increase parachute payments. Maybe they will like like double them. So it kind of is like doesn't make it such a big hit if teams are relegated. There may be some teams who facing a future of like soccer behind closed doors. Maybe they want the relegation to be able to offload some of their salary. Who knows? But I, I, I wonder if they'll have to do special concessions to find a way to make these games happen, because I kind of think they have to find a way to make them happen, uh, if not from an entertainment and making everybody happy standpoint, more so from a financial standpoint yep both standpoints I'm, I'm on board with this though i want this to happen i really want this to happen but i've just i think it's probably about 50 percent likely at this point is that a fair percentage yeah i mean you mean this specific thing or do you mean floating yeah. soccer islands oh floating soccer islands 100 percent if okay. it goes ahead but 50 percent <laughs> if the actual concept I mean, it feels like the type of thing where maybe they have, like, leaked the rumor to see how people respond. Um, and and I kind of think at this point, mo- a lot of people, look like, like sports are sports. Uh, I understand their importance and significance and the weight of them, and I miss them greatly. But they do not supersede, like, you know, individual health and, uh, like, the, you know, like the stability of society and so i wouldn't say like rushing into something just because we want sport and we need entertainment is the best idea but that said i do think as things maybe calm down and like like it feels like like play, more and more players are testing negative and seem like they're in in uh like okay health to presume like resume i think that is maybe what they'll end up doing just to try to get some semblance of normalcy but also to get the season finished so they yeah. don't have to forfeit massive amounts of money well, also, another benefit of this, Taylor, if Liverpool win two more games on Soccer Island, uh, their victory parade could be on socially distant speedboats. Hey, there we go. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Isn't how they begin the Olympics with like Daniel Craig driving a speedboat up the River Thames or something like that? Maybe, maybe they could just do that. That could be the Liverpool parade, although I'm assuming it would need to be in Liverpool and less so in London. Yeah, drop the Queen in 
on a helicopter with the trophy. That's it. There we <laughs> right. go. Well, since we have already brought up some very bad ideas, uh, let's move on to uh, maybe even worse ideas. We're going to be discussing some of the worst signings ever, in our humble opinions, we should add. Um, we have various criteria for what we've criteria, excuse me, for what we've decided upon, uh, and we're basically just going to go back and forth talking about some of the most shambolic, nonsensical, confusing, seemingly good but eventually terrible moves that have happened, uh, according specifically to our memory. Uh, I want to just get that up front because there are probably some big ones that people will be expecting that maybe aren't on here. There may be some obvious ones that we're going to go a little bit deeper on, and then some uh, less heralded, less horrifically bad on the surface, but actually really bad overall moves that we will eventually get to. Ryan, with all of that preamble established, uh, where would you like to start? You really covered our bases with that preamble. Thank I do my best. That. I do my best. Um, so I, I do have a top five worst signings ever. Mm. I'd like to start with a couple of honorable mentions who didn't uh, yes, quite please. make the top five. First of which, very recent signing, Martin Braithwaite mm-hmm. for Barcelona, uh, who was uh, taken from Lejanes, who relegation threatened, of course, should the season go ahead, uh, in very, very controversial circumstances based around the fact they didn't do their own squad planning properly, uh, exploiting a very bizarre uh, Spanish Federation rule that they could take someone else's player and that player could not be replaced himself. Uh, Braithwaite ended up playing 127 minutes for Barcelona. And according to reports over this weekend, they're already looking to sell him. Bravo, Barcelona. Yikes. Um, Like that, like I've never seen a team... And again, this is Barcelona who have uh, La Masia and have this, you know, the system of bring through the youth and they used to have this very stable plan. It really reminds me of when I've played too much FIFA, like it, like too for too long a time period, and I get to the transfer window, and I'm like, why not? Like I'll just throw some money out. I've got a transfer budget. Let's sign that guy and that guy and that guy. And then the next mm. day, I wake up and I look at, it and I'm like, I don't need any of these people. This is going to be a disaster. I can't believe Barcelona actually operate the way I do when I'm playing FIFA at 1:30 in the morning. <laughs> That's optimal, Taylor. I like to hear about that. <laughs> uh, my other honourable mention would be a classic from the 90s, Ali Dia. Do you remember Ali Dia? Oh, Taylor? yes, I do. Not so Ali Dai, which is an important distinction. <laughs> <laughs> Ali Dia in 1996 was signed by Southampton mm-hmm. by their manager then Graham Souness, the Paul Pogba hating Graham Souness, um, who got a tip that he was George Weyer's cousin, FIFA World Player of the Year George Weyer, the Liberian legend who played for Milan. Uh, Ali Dia also claimed that he'd played for Paris Saint-Germain. Mm-hmm. Now, these are all things in the modern era where we might have looked them up on the internet or yeah. there might have been a database that could have proved all of this stuff. Sunes didn't need to worry about any of that because uh, Dia, based on that word of mouth alone, got a one-month contract with Southampton. He came on in a game, made a substitute appearance against Leeds in the Premier League, in which he was so bad he got subbed back off again. Yep. He was released two weeks later. Uh, I think Matt Letizier described it as being embarrassing. He was running around the field like Bambi on ice. Yep. And how he got to the stage of being brought on in a Premier League game before they realised he couldn't actually play soccer and he was a complete fraud playing some kind of bizarre prank is quite beyond me. Do, well, do you know you know what Graham Sunis blamed it on, right? Paul Pogba? That's correct. Said <laughs> <laughs> Paul Pogba retroactively went back and made that phone call that convinced Graham Sunis to sign him. I do wonder if there's some weird, strange connection of Sunis was like burned like uh, once bitten, twice shy or whatever, that like like this burned him. And after that, he was like, you know what? I'm not trusting anybody until they're the Ballon d'Or winners. That's it. I don't trust anybody. And now we understand why he dislikes Paul Pogba so much. Paul Pogba has not yet won the Ballon d'Or and therefore is the same as uh, Ali Dia in Graham Sunis's eyes. I think he just hates everything. I or think that. That's the or that. Uh, and if you want to feel old, Ali Deer is now 54 years old. 
uh, and still willing to play for any Premier League teams that need him, uh, is what I've heard. Yeah. Um, my two honorable mentions are names that people might have heard of. Uh, one of them is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. One of them is Kaká. Uh, for very again, different reasons. Uh, yeah, so it's Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He's Swedish. Um, okay. But I have when he moves uh, to Barcelona uh, for Samuel Eto'o plus boatloads, almost literally boatloads of money, uh, plays there one season, feuds with Pep Guardiola, gets uh, sent on loan to Milan. Eventually that move becomes permanent. So he burns Inter because he moves from Inter to Barca and then to Milan. Uh, they didn't love that. He burns his relationship with Pep Guardiola, which is, I believe, still an ongoing feud uh, in oh, which yeah. he compares himself to, what, a Ferrari versus a Fiat uh, and how Pep Guardiola saw him. Uh, but really, it's just one of those weird moments of a player, it seems like, oh, this club who are already this successful are adding this player who's going to make them just, like, completely unbeatable for the rest of life, like, for the rest of as long as they're playing, and instead it just kind of burns out immediately after one year. That was a very strange one. Then... Kaká is the parano- is the one that has made me paranoid for like most of my soccer fandom since this happened because that was a move that like I think because he was so big it had me thinking in the moment oh this is going to work again same thing as Zlatan and then you realize like oh maybe he's a little bit older and maybe not quite up to it and maybe not ready to handle Serie A as a or excuse me La Liga as opposed to Serie A and it kind of flames out spectacularly and ever since then he has been the sort of one for me that I always go back to whenever there's a massive name moving from, moving from one big club to another big club, I always get a little apprehensive, and it's always rooted in what if it's Kaká. Well, let's. The, the, there were extenuating circumstances around Kaká moving to Real Madrid because, if I remember correctly, was it about sixty-five million or something? He yes. had a big unveiling at the Bernabeu. Was it one week later when they revealed Ronaldo at the same stadium yeah, for a lot more money? Yeah, there's that. <laughs> there's that. There was like the the rise of Mesut Ozil, uh, who basically was competing with Kaká. Kaká was competing for him, and then kind of lost that spot. And so here's this marquee name who comes in, who's no longer even the marquee name because of Cristiano Ronaldo, and then loses his spot in the lineup as well. It, it's a double blow. It's a double blow for Kaká. Yeah. But then he goes to Orlando City, and it's all fine. Yeah, everything was great. Yeah, yeah. everything's fine. Uh, no need to look further. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> Shall I start with my number five, then? Please. Now, this, I, don't th- I think this is a left-field choice, Taylor. I'm not sure if many people would agree with this, but I'm going for Steven Gerrard mm. to... Is it pronounced La Galaxy? Are they French? That's the one. Yes, it's La Galaxy. Uh, His move to La Galaxy in 2015. Now, I sort of regard this, him and Frank Lampard coming over to MLS as sort of the last of a breed of big stars kind of treating MLS like a retirement league almost. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a guy who, you know, was Liverpool captain, was England captain at a World Cup and comes over. I'm not sure if he came over with the sincerest and the best reasons. We know that Brendan Rodgers at at Liverpool at the time offered him uh, a lower salary to stay and uh, be a one-club man, which would have been a nice way to go out. But he would have had reduced minutes in that team uh, because he was in his decline. Instead, he chose to spend that decline in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. where that decline was very much on show. It was very much that he was past his best day. He was in his mid-30s at this point. And I think he got taken by surprise by how physically demanding MLS was. He complained about the physicality. He complained about the travel, the difficulty with adjusting to weather and altitude. And I think he went over there to sort of live in the Malibu mansion and go for the lifestyle. And and, and I just got a bit annoyed where there was, there was instance like where um, he complained about flying cost crunchy for games. And then he took a job as a pundit on BT Sports in London, mm-hmm. where he would travel back and forth across the Atlantic regularly for Champions League games yep. while playing for LA Galaxy, while doing all the training and traveling on top of that. So it just felt like he didn't take the, the, the contract as seriously as he could have. And he wasn't embraced 
in California like a Beckham or like a like a Robbie Keane was. I just felt like, you know, and obviously it doesn't help that LA Galaxy underachieved while he was there. They just made the playoffs and didn't go any further than that. A team that had made three MLS Cups in the previous four years before he arrived. So I just feel like this is a real a real failure of a transfer. Are you with me on yeah. that? Oh, absolutely. And it's precipitated by, I think, in his last game uh, for Liverpool, he's signing jerseys, he's signing everything as he's leaving. Somebody has a Galaxy jersey they wanted to sign, and I think he says, like, oh, not that now. Like, once I move, I'll sign that. Which I think Daryl and I talked about in the moment as being sort of overblown. It was just him being like, no, I want to focus on my last time at Liverpool, then I can focus on the LA Galaxy. But it does sort of set the stage for him to always have the perspective of, like, ah, oh, later. We'll get to the Galaxy later. We'll focus on them later on. And it does feel like a move that he thought would be glitz and glamour everyone's going to be obsessed with me everyone's going to kind of want me to be this next level celebrity I'm going to be on all the talk shows and that was still kind of David Beckham's thing and and I think he doesn't really have that level of celebrity and then he was never going to be Robbie Keane who really seemed to like fully embrace and love playing for the Galaxy and enjoyed playing in Major League Soccer and so you end up getting a Gerard who sort of keeps looking back at England is like that would be more fun to just be hanging out and like talking about games and maybe playing some games and maybe taking up some managerial courses and that's the way it goes but yeah I think just because he's representative of like a wave of like formerly great Premier League stars coming to MLS and being okay but not great and it Mm. sort of like doesn't set anything back by any stretch of the imagination but it is that like sort of intermediate period between like oh the Beckhams and and those big names coming in and then sort of like the next wave of Miguel Almiron, Joseph Martinez, uh, other people who don't just play for Atlanta but like younger DPs from South America you've got this intermediate period of like yeah I guess that person is good Kaká sort of similar in my mind as a player who didn't quite live up to it what we thought they would be when they came to Major League Soccer. And I know other big players have come over from Europe since, um, mm-hmm. you know, Zlatan as an example. But this felt like sort of almost a catalyst for change, I felt like, in the league. When him and Lampard came over, would we have had sort of Atlanta taking their, you know, non-big name approach or, you know, take Central and South American yeah. approach if they hadn't seen how things hadn't, you know, money wasn't well spent on the likes of Gerard and Lampard? So what I'm hearing now is you saying it was a good move. For others, not for the Galaxy. (laughs) Um, Well, I will move us along then uh, because uh, I've I've enjoyed talking about Steven Gerrard, but I'm happy to talk about uh, other flops. And I'm going to take us to Andrei Shevchenko, uh, his move from AC Milan to Chelsea. Um, And I should say up front that there are some names that regularly appear on like worst transfer lists or worst transfers of all time that I think sort of are like because they were on other lists. And you stop seeing a lot of specific information and you just see like, Failed to settle in, failed to have an impact, lost faith, and then eventually moved on. But you don't get like the specifics. Juan Sebastian Verón is a big one of those. But for me, yeah. Andrei Shevchenko is a very specific example of a transfer that at the time didn't make sense and still doesn't make sense to this day because <laughs> Shevchenko is a superstar at that time period. I remember being legitimately terrified when teams I liked would go up against a team that had Shevchenko in it. Uh, even like Turkey, when I was living in Turkey, when they played Ukraine in World Cup qualifying, I was just terrified he was going to be there because he was that good. But by 2006, he is already 30 years old, which means he's on the decline. Uh, he's basically moving to a Chelsea team that have Didier Drogba there, Didier Drogba in his prime, 
an HLC team that do not play multiple strikers. They played one up front in a 4-2-3-1 under Jose Mourinho. That was their style. So he's moving there for a ton of money, and it becomes clear that he's moving there because Roman Abramovich, Chelsea owner, really likes him. They're best friends, or they're very good friends at least. And I think Abramovich just wanted to have his buddy there, wanted him in London, wanted to show that he had the financial muscle to make this move happen. Jose Mourinho did not want this, very clearly did not want this, didn't really know how to utilize him, didn't give him consistent minutes. That becomes a theme with Chelsea signing superstars. We'll talk more about that later. But it basically ends up being, I I would say, one of the things that leads to Jose Mourinho and the rift with Imbrovich getting worse, and then it ends up with his falling out a year later when he moves in September, when he uh, resigns in September or parts mutual ways. Sure, sure, sure. But I think Shevchenko is a big part of that because it's a big-name player who's kind of forced on a manager who has things settled, now has to find a way to juggle a new 30 million pound ball and and really struggles to do so, mostly yeah. because he doesn't want to. And so it just felt like a lot of imperfect things to c- coming together to create a very imperfect situation. Now, I don't care much for Chelsea, but I remember feeling distinctly sad that Shevchenko was kind of a shadow of what he was before when he came to the Premier League, definitely. And this also felt like Chelsea heritage. This felt like something that Chelsea do a lot. Uh, Get players who were big in Italy and pass their prime to come and play for you. Rud Hullet, Gianluca Vialli, Mm -hmm. Hernan Crespo, I suppose you can count him as well. It just seemed like a continuation of that theme. And this was the point where they went, all right, let's... Let's pump the brakes on it. <laughs> Let's pump the brakes very briefly and then uh, go fully onto the gas again in, in a few short years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a shame. Though. That's a good choice, though. I like your choice there. All right, thank you. Thank you, sir. What have you got next for us? Number four mm-hmm. is, a con- I think this is another left field choice. Um, there's a fellow called Neymar, a Brazilian. Oh, okay. He moved from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain in 2017 uh, for a cost of all of the Euros. He cost yeah, all of the all Euros. Of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And he is, he is currently paid all of the Euros by they had Paris to print, Saint-Germain. They had to print double the Euros that were in circulation to make that move happen. Yeah, he caused hyperinflation in France, but it's totally <laughs> worth it. Um, so I just think, you know, you can, you can talk about success that Neymar's had. You know, one back-to-back league titles, you know, scored, I think it's something like 60 goals in 70 appearances. But that's only, that's very, that's being very selective with the picture that Neymar has painted in Paris, mm-hmm. is it not? He's missed over 60 games, many of which for seemingly quite flimsy reasons, i.e. I think his sister has a birthday every couple of months that so he has to go and attend. He yeah. flies back to Brazil for, for sponsorship reasons, to do things with Red Bull and stuff like that. And on the field, I don't think he's covered himself in glory. He's had bans for abusing referees, for fighting with fans after cup finals. He generally can be quite ill-tempered. I don't think he's a good representative of the club if there is such a thing for Paris Saint-Germain. And it always seems like he's itching to leave. I think he's... He, did he not miss the start of training this campaign because he was trying to itch for a, to, to get away at some point? It, it's always it's always speculation. It's always rumor. I enjoyed in the Brazil documentary that even in Brazil, it's sort of like, where's Neymar? What is he doing? What is happening? Is he playing? Is he injured? Even they don't mm. seem to know, and that's at national team level. So uh, I pity the fools at club level. It just seems like he's he's just about... He's he's about commercialism and not really about the product on the field and and the whole, the, all the stuff about like I'll tell you what he's like a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse to me. Okay, he's fine, but he's not worth the money. Yeah, that makes sense. And and like has has the reputation has all of this sort of like all the trappings of this extravagant player around him, and yet at the end it's like yeah, it's okay, and it's a little yeah. bit like bit much at times, but at other times it also feels like there should be more here. Definitely, and I think. You know, he's not a bad... We know Neymar is a good, talented soccer player, but he's not worth $225 million or whatever they paid. He was supposed to be the one who usurped Messi and Ronaldo at the top. That duopoly 
it hasn't materialized. And whether he's done, he chose the wrong club for that to materialize is another question. But he didn't do that. He hasn't delivered Paris Saint-Germain the Champions League title. Surely, if you're spending that money, you want at least one of those things to happen. He went from being one third of possibly the best attacking trident in soccer history mm-hmm. to irrelevance. It, it, or at least decidedly less relevance, yes. Because, yeah. I mean, PSG, like, maybe unfairly, but I, I don't think it is, have that reputation of being a bit of, like, a place where you go because you're going to be really, really well compensated. They mm-hmm. don't have a, a major rival when it comes to Ligue 1 competition. They're going to win for as long as they continue to spend money or until another gazillionaire comes in and starts investing. See Monaco when they were putting the money in. And, and I think... Until that happens, it's just going to be PSG have all the money. They can win everything. But that means they're going to have that reputation of a club where certainly they have some superstars who are going to perform and be very, very uh, like high profile looking in the direction of Kylian Mbappe. Even he has had kind of off-field distraction rumors. But for mm-hmm. the most part, you're going to have players like Neymar who I think at a club where he's really being pushed and challenged and can't get away with sort of some of the behavior he gets away with, like Barcelona, you see the best of him. Here with PSG, you see the worst. And then I think that's emphasized by the little stuff that comes out about how his contract has clauses saying that he can bring friends over and he's allowed to take time off and he's allowed to do this and that. There's the one that came out, I think, like, since we've um, had the coronavirus outbreak, there was a, like, what's your favorite fact you've learned? And one of them I learned uh, from someone else was that he has the ethical bonus. Have you seen yeah. this? This is unreal. 375 grand for uh, uh, applauding fans after matches, right? Correct. 375,000 euro bonus for applauding the fans. Yes. Yeah. Like that, and there that... was also the thing where apparently Cavani was offered a million euros to let Neymar take penalties by the president of PSG. So there you go. So it it just feels like it's sort of... It, it's gone from him being pushed and challenged and really maybe was going to supplant that kind of duopoly to yeah. he's now focused more so on making sure that every single part of his contract is honored and, by a club who seem to not really care about money at all. Uh, <laughs> but and I'll say, so maybe it's a perfect the, marriage. Who knows? Yeah, and one of the biggest problems, even if they don't care about money, is I think he's they're stuck with him because who's going to pay the kind of money they need to take him right now? There's rumors of him going back to Barcelona, but if he goes back to Barcelona, this is a club who've had to cut, you know, put their players, take 70% of their wages off at the moment to deal with the financial burden of this situation. Mm -hmm. And they'd be admitting that they shouldn't have let him go and and they wasted the money they, they spent, they got for him. You know, I I just don't see how any club in the world would buy him right now, to be honest. Um, Carl Anka, when he was on the show a while back, uh, had the idea that like Jose Mourinho, when he shaves his own head, you know that something has gone wrong. Like you can yep. buckle up for there to be drama ahead. I feel like with Neymar, as soon as we start hearing um, like a sustained media campaign of oh he's really professional now, oh he's really changed, like he's coming, he's the first one at training, he's the one who's leading training, he's asking questions, he's really into it. I feel like that's when we know that he is really trying to get a move. As soon as yeah. the kind of PR blitz becomes. He's really ch- turned a new leaf. He's changed. He's much more uh, mature, and he's learned from his past mistakes, and now he really wants to test himself at the highest possible level that you can read between the lines as, I want to move back to Barcelona or maybe Manchester <laughs> City. One or the other. Yeah. I don't know. He's my number four anyway. All right. Uh, my number four uh, is a man who we haven't talked about in a very, very long time, but I think it's worth talking about. It's Bebe, uh, the Portuguese youth international, uh, and his move to Manchester United. Um, Manchester United reported that it was 7.4 million pound uh, transfer. Uh, I think Portuguese media say 9 million euros, of which 3.5 million went to George Mendes, uh, uh, Bebe's agent slash the super agent, uh, who is... Uh, I think very, very good friends slash best friends with Nuno at Wolves. So you can 
can see why some of his players have moved there. But uh, before that happened, instead we had Bebe moving to Manchester United. Ryan, do you remember like this move happening, and do you remember what you thought at the time? Ooh, baby, I loved his way. No. Yes, it, I do remember. Sorry. <laughs> Importantly, you called him Baby, because so too did Sir Alex Ferguson, apparently. Yeah. Uh, who, it's worth noting, had never seen him. Signed him uh, unseen, uh, based on the recommendations of uh, supposedly George Mendes and Carlos Quiroz, his former number two, who was then, I believe, the uh, manager of, Port- of the Portugal national team. Quiroz uh, uh, has uh, denied that. He said that he was not involved in this one, but Ferguson uh, points the figure that way. Um, but it's a very strange thing, because we kind of, we know the basics, right? We know that he was uh, grew up homeless. He signed for a club uh then he moves to manchester united it doesn't really work out he gets loaned out he gets moved on but in between are the details of like he moves to vittoria uh, Digam- uh Digamarish, who uh, that's where manchester united signed him from but it's yeah. basically because the amateur team where bebe was playing couldn't afford his like 300 uh, euros a week salary so they basically he was then they were in breach of contract he moves to vittoria Digamarish. he who plays in the third division by a- the way Yes, uh, he plays a couple games for them. I think, like, but not even competitive games. He plays like some preseason games. Uh, they think he's good enough to increase his release clause from three million to nine million. And then I guess there are rumblings that there's this new Portuguese superstar sensation who's rags to riches, kind of literally. Um, and that he could be the next big thing. This is at a time when Manchester United have signed Nani as sort of an eye towards, I think, keeping Cristiano Ronaldo happy, but also maybe replacing Cristiano Ronaldo and being that next big superstar. Now maybe here's the next one. And so I think, honestly, that's where a lot of this comes from, is I think Strauss Ferguson getting on a bit in years, maybe hears that there's this guy, he's going to be good. It's $9 million, who cares? It's not that, uh, not that massive amount of money. And really, if you watch Baby play, he's fine, but he is definitely a like League One championship player. He's currently in the uh, in the second division in Spain and is fine. But it, it's it's sort of because of all of the surrounding aspects of why was he like basically ten million dollars? That seems like it kind of came out of nowhere. Why does the third of that fee go to an agent? And it kind of reveals that at the time, uh, Portugal had third-party ownership and that agents could basically invest all the money, but then they were making all the money back. So then there was incentive for them to overly hype players. And I think it changes a lot of how we see the way agents work. It kind of exposes a lot of the shady side of football. FIFA ended up moving to outlaw third-party ownership. Uh, There's questions about conspiracy theories and was this a sort of like make good for moves that have happened? There's even a theory about Nani testing positive for a drug test and getting out of it. There's a whole bunch of crazy conspiracy theories, but I think anytime you have to resort to that level to explain why a transfer happened, it's a sign that maybe it wasn't the most successful transfer. I, th- I think I'd be inclined to agree with that. Yeah, apparently the Portuguese police did investigate the deal mm-hmm. for suspicion of corruption, so bad yep. it was. He stayed on the books for four seasons, though. He That's sure impressive. He stayed on the books for four seasons. He made seven appearances and scored mm-hmm. one goal, which was in the Champions League. And apparently he later admitted that he thought it was a joke when United first approached him. Yeah, I mean, and you would, right? Because, I mean, it, it is literally like he was playing for an amateur team. Then he moves to yeah. a third division team where he still has not played a competitive game. And suddenly <laughs> the big, one of the biggest clubs in the world are in for him. You would think it was kind of a joke. And then I think that was emphasized by Sox Ferguson not learning his name. Uh, he told him to get a haircut, so maybe got a haircut. Then Ferguson didn't recognize him and thought he was a new player. Uh, so I think it was not the the best situation, and it really does speak to maybe that Fergie wasn't entirely invested in some of the signings coming in. It, it is a good reminder that managers aren't in charge of everything, or at least weren't at that time. Well, for all the all the praise that Alex Ferguson gets for assembling amazing squads and players, mm-hmm. you know the, the, he did have some bad 
decisions that were made at that time. Eric Jemba Jemba. Oh, yeah. Jordi Cruyff. Massimo oh. Taibbi. Uh, Cleberson. There's you, quite a few from that period. I mean, you really could, and if you want to just broaden out to Man United, as I said, Juan Sebastian Verona appears in a lot of them, and I'm still not entirely yeah. sure why, but you really could make like a, a, a top 10 list of worth transfers and and have a good go at putting them all as Manchester United players or Manchester United sales that didn't uh, end up working out for them. And I think uh, you have a pretty strong list. So uh, You could do not- a pretty strong list of post-Ferguson bad transfers for United, to be honest. We could, but it would make me sad, uh, and <laughs> I don't want to be sad. I want to be happy, and to do so, uh, to be even happier, I want to talk about today's sponsor, because it is a sponsor that I think I need uh, more than many others. It's Hydrant. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. And the thing I did not realize, um, but needed mathematically spelled out for me, uh, around 75% of us are walking around uh, everyday life uh, as chronically dehydrated persons. Uh, Now, I know what we say about statistics, uh, but I tend to believe this one because I do wake up every morning thinking, why am I so thirsty? Why am I so dehydrated? Oh, right. It's because I, like, exist entirely on coffee and no water. Uh, Just the water in the coffee. I feel like that should do the job. But if you have frequent headaches, energy slumps, poor focus, it may well be that you're dehydrated and it may well be that hydrant can help you out. Coffee's a diuretic, darling. That's not helping your hydration levels, is it? And if you are worried about... Well, I do also have a Mexican Coke open next to my coffee. Does that help? (laughs) Where do you get that from? Uh, The store around the corner, which is is wonderful for giving me uh, pure sugar uh, (laughs) Coca-Cola as opposed to (laughs) high fructose corn syrup. I'm I'm inclined to believe that the thing that I, like, know what it is and can easily measure being sugar, I have a little bit more faith in than high fructose corn syrup. Don't know what it is. Don't really trust it. Uh, So, yeah, Mexican Coke it is. There you go. We should have a bit more faith in Hydrant because it's got some more pleasing ingredients yeah, in terms of hydration. That is Each definitely rapid true. hydration mix has four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, which helps your body hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. Did you know, Taylor, that formula was developed by Oxford scientists, scientists wow. in Oxford, who help provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. Do you have to wear Oxford loafers to be an Oxford scientist? Is that how it works? And you have to break up all your sentences with Oxford commas, I believe. Lovely. (laughs) But that means no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. Uh, The jolly good folks at Oxford would never allow that. The formula is vegan. You can choose between three different flavors or or a variety variety pack. Uh, It starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. And for 25% off your first order, you can go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code SOCCER uh, at checkout. Uh, For 25% off, once again, uh, off your first order, go to hydrant.com and enter promo code soccer at checkout. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code soccer, get hydrated. Job done, Ryan. In Thank you order. for that. All right, no Mexican so, Coke. <laughs> we've done our honorable mentions. We've done numbers five and four. Who's your number three uh, worst transfer? Well, I'm afraid, Tata, you did say you didn't want to be reminded of the sadness of Manchester United's oh transfer history post Sir Alex Ferguson. But my number three is going to hammer it home for you. Mr. Alexis Sanchez. It's telling that I I wasn't sure which name you were going to say, because it really could be like four (laughs) or five. Well, yeah, it definitely could have been Angel Di Maria. Definitely could have been Memphis Depay, both of whom did not um, live up to their own Even Schweinsteiger? I feel like you could throw Schweinsteiger in there, too. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and maybe Schweinsteiger for another club, maybe an American-based one, you could uh, (laughs) argue uh, as well. But that's another story. Um, So, obviously, Sanchez was pretty electric in three and a half seasons at Arsenal. And then that led to a swap deal with uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan. 
Um, Manchester United beating City to his signature. Would he have been a different player at Manchester City? That's a question we can uh, maybe dwell on in a moment. But that swap deal didn't seem to benefit either side in the end. Uh, Reports that he was paid between 400 and 500 grand a week. Um, This is for a player who didn't end up being first choice a lot of the time. That's a lot of cash to spend on a player who's not making a starting 11 week in, week out. In 45 appearances with United, he scored uh, five goals. A recent quote from Jose Mourinho said that uh, the reason he thought he didn't succeed was because he was sad. A quote says, maybe it was me who wasn't capable to get him in the right mood and get the best out of him. You think, Jose? Maybe. Um, But, you know, there there was a lot of... A lot of reasons as to why he couldn't have uh, performed to his best. He did have a lack of game time, which sort of perpetuated a lack of fitness. A quote from Sanchez, if they let me play a full game, I would win it, he said. Okay. But sometimes I'd have 60 minutes and not play the next game, and I didn't know why. Uh, and, you know, there's there's arguments. Uh, Neil Ashton from uh, the paper whose name we shan't mention uh, had a story recently saying how he was not good in the dressing room. He retreated, withdrawing into his shell. He isolated himself, which is apt for this moment, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Isolated himself from the United dressing room when things started to go wrong. And apparently, according to Neil Ashton, nothing was ever his fault. He would blame the quality of passes when he missed a shot, that kind of thing, you know. Yep. And I wonder if, there's an element of him being overworked because he had he never had a break at United no. D. Consecutive Copper Americas and he never had a summer off or time to, you know, chill out apart from when he wasn't playing, I suppose. And now he's gone off to Italy, of course. United is still playing forty percent of his wages. That's yeah. quite a wedge they're paying for a player who's, you know, not literally doing nothing for them. And even there he's Probably not first choice, is he? I mean Latore Martinez seems to be getting picked ahead of him uh, up front with Lukaku. Yeah, I think he has another injury. And he's got another injury. And worst of all, he's likely to come back to United as well. Because yeah. at the end of this season, I don't think he's going to be staying in Italy. He's going to be back on the books. And I think the only ray of sunshine we can get from this is that we've had greater exposure to Atom and Humber, his two are they retrievers or Labradors? His two dogs. They're Whatever they are, they're adorable and lovely. Uh, I am looking forward to the inevitable headline of Ed Woodward saying that Alexis Sanchez is like a new signing when he returns to <laughs> Manchester United because Inter don't exercise that uh, that buy clause. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot to say about Alexis Sanchez. I mean, you're right. There's no rest coming in. He's got, like I think, the 14 World Cup, 15 Copa America, 16 Copa America Centenario. So yeah. he, he gets really no time off because he's got the sustained campaigns. And then, yeah. He basically leaves Arsenal, and it's worth remembering, like, Arsenal at the time, I remember the games where he would, he was turning and, like, screaming at everybody to run with him and try to step forward and try to press a bit more and try to be yeah. a bit more bold, and and you could see the frustration there, and 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 then in retrospect, it was essentially Man United swapping him and and uh, swapping Enrique Mkhitaryan and a bunch of money to get Alexis Sanchez, but it was sort of like, we're taking this player who's in a dysfunctional, like, non-helpful situation and moving him to a situation that is dysfunctional and non-helpful and vice versa like basically I, I have a feeling Alexis Sanchez walked in and was like what like this is the vibe here too like oh no and I do <laughs> wonder yeah I do think that he probably has more success at Man City just because I think there's there's a better caliber of player around him at that time there's Pep Guardiola who's probably not going to tolerate a lot of what he's he's bringing to the table if he wants to throw a fit it's sort of is going to be the whole team being like well tough man you're out of it and yeah. and I and I do think that maybe that kind of gets the better out of him and maybe he gets more games but I think instead he walks into Man United and it's kind of fractured the locker room is weak Weird. There's uncertainty about what's going to happen with the team. And then he comes in and doesn't get the minutes he wants, doesn't get the consistent minutes, doesn't maybe have the vibe around him that he needs. And so it all just kind of falls apart. But it is one that 
Similar to Kaka, I kept expecting, oh, it's eventually going to work out. Eventually they will find a way to kind of get the best out of him and he'll kind of hit form and it will be all wonderful. And here we are. Here we are indeed. Manchester United not using a star signing properly. Can you believe it? <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, let's move away from Manchester United for a moment, even though I'm sure folks don't <laughs> no want to. No response to that one. Okay, let's move on. I mean, I'm just used to, we, we didn't even mention Falcao in there. Falcao could also oh, be boy. on the list. It's, it's fun. Uh, I am not going to talk <laughs> any more about Man United, or at least I'm going to try not to. Instead, I'm going to talk about maybe a, a lesser known, less publicized player. It's Alfonso Alves at Middlesbrough. Yep. Uh, he moves there in January of 2008 for 20 million euros. I believe that happens, uh, on deadline day, uh, in, I think January. Yes, it's a January 2008 move on deadline day. So right. right there, you already have the makings of this might not be the best idea. It feels a bit panicky. And I think the reason why I have this one as my number three is not just because Alfonso Alves was so unsuccessful. He really was from Middlesbrough. He doesn't bring anything. He then kind of moves on to playing in the Middle East and kind of playing in various leagues around the world. But it shows you that he maybe wasn't cut out for the high-level quality of the Premier League at that era. But the biggest thing for me is that it establishes this narrative of Eredivisie strikers can't perform in uh, the Premier League. It really... Like helps or the, like helps solidify or in my mind solidifies creates the idea that that can't happen and so when you have Vincent Janssen uh, struggling at Tottenham it's oh it's another Eredivisie striker who can't get the job done even Josie Altidore when he moves to Sunderland it's it sort of becomes that example and it, you create a narrative that then these players all kind of fit into and you can shoehorn them into yeah. and so I think you have to look at the player who really establishes that model or really cements it as you can't trust an Eredivisie striker to come to the Premier League uh, and not look at all the other circumstances around it, like Middlesbrough are already struggling. It's a January signing on deadline day when they're definitely panicking a little bit, which maybe shows that he wasn't their primary target. Lots of extenuating circumstances, but you can kind of cut those away and instead establish the narrative of Eredivisie strikers, just not that good. Uh, so that's why I hate the move even more than just it was unsuccessful for a team uh, like Middlesbrough. Yeah, and another example of that more recent, probably Ricky Van Balswinkle to Norwich. Yep. Right? Another yep. example of that kind of uh, pattern happening. Um, Even and Memphis. Also- Memphis to Man United, you mentioned him previously. Yeah, that's another that's one. True. Oh, good. I but- brought Man United back up. Okay, let's, move- <laughs> let's not talk about that. Right, <laughs> well, think- anything else? Anything else you wanted to add about Dutch strikers uh, or Eredivisie strikers or Alfonso Alves or Middlesbrough? Well, I think. I think the biggest thing about Alves is well, he was eventually blamed for them getting relegated. Like yes. the money they spent on him was basically the fans thought he was responsible for their demise. Uh, which, which is probably unfair in the moment, but at the same time, like if you're investing, what was it is strange to see all these figures and remember how I was like thirty million. Like how can they even afford? Like where does that money come from? And here we are now. Uh, but like I think at the time you look at, at a twenty million outlay for a club like Middlesbrough, you're expecting a massive return on that investment. You're expecting him to be that sort of next level player that elevates the team and gets you into this situation where you're gonna be massively successful. You're not expecting. 10 goals and 42 appearances, and then he moves to Al-Sad, Al-Rayan, Al-Rayan, and Al-Garafa. Uh, not really where they were hoping, I think, that move ended up working out. A lot of Al's there. You can mm-hmm. call me Al's. <laughs> you know, he he, uh, he wanted to play for Al Roker, but Al Roker hadn't yet set up uh, his team in New York, so he went with Al-Sad <laughs> instead. All righty then. Shall I move on to my number two? <laughs> oh boy. Yes, please do. Uh, it's another one where, well, it, it's it's one of the big ones. This is Fernando Torres uh, moving mm. from Liverpool to Chelsea. Another deadline day. There's been a lot of deadline day bad January signings, haven't yeah. there? This was 2011 deadline day. Oh, I've got but, one more coming. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> this one was for £50 million, pounds, which once again seemed like a lot of money at the time. It, that, it was a new was... British... 
I, it sorry, was a British transfer interrupt. record at the time. It, he was the sixth most expensive player ever. Uh, now I think Alexis Sanchez has fifty million pounds down the back of his sofa. It, so it's it not really quite. is. Like I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I just have to. Like I remember seeing that number and being like, "Well, that's not real. Like that can't that can't be a thing. Fifty yeah. million euros is like we have just crossed it. Like this world doesn't make sense anymore. And again, now here we are with Neymar being what like two hundred million. I forget. It, it was a lot. Then Kylian Mbappe the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So th- this was a lot of money at the time. It was a very big, big, big deal moving from uh, a Premier League rival to Chelsea and a very exciting deal because you could say in 2007-8 and 2008-9, he was probably the best player in the Premier League, right? He was very technically proficient, very exciting striker, had great movement, great technicality. And his first game for Chelsea uh, was a defeat to Liverpool which sort of felt like a harbinger of what was to come. Mm-hmm. Um, he got one goal in his first full season. It took him 903 minutes to get that first goal. Uh, 20 goals in 110 league appearances for Chelsea. That's an average of a goal every five and a half games for a star striker. He scored no more than eight goals in any season. And this is all because it came against the background. While he was at Chelsea, he got the Euro 2012 golden boot. You know, they, they won the Champions League in 2012, mm-hmm. of which he played a, 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 a kind of a part as well. And he came off the back of being a part of the 2010 Spain World Cup campaign, albeit he was a, a bit part player in that. And it's another reason, it's another one when you look at and say, why did he flop? Well, I think there's, there was a lot of reasons. I think he did have injuries. I think he didn't get the same kind of service he got a lot of balls on the floor and moving pacey football from Roy Hodgson's Liverpool, which he didn't quite get at Chelsea. And I think maybe the biggest one was his confidence was shot, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it's crazy to say that, like, yeah, Roy Hodgson had a new, knew how to use him and Carlo Ancelotti did not. Uh, that, that seems like an odd sentence. But knowing what we know about Ancelotti now and how his style, at least in the last few years, but uh, potentially and likely back then, was just sort of like you bring in these names, you find a way to make them happy, and then they kind of perform. Like, that's an oversimplification, certainly. But he is much more about, like, personality management and keeping the kind of uh, harmony in the squad. And so to bring in Fernando Torres, who I think, yeah, he required good service. He required a system around him. He required a lot of understanding. With that, became required a lot of matches. So he needed yeah. kind of. I think Luke Moore of the Football Ramble at the time made this argument and has always stuck with me that he needed sort of four matches or maybe five matches in the Premier League to find his form, to figure out how to play in the system. And then he maybe would have succeeded from there. That was the argument at the time. And instead, what he would get was like one start and then a substitute appearance, and then he wouldn't play the next game. And with that, you're not getting those reps you need to figure out how to fit into the system and figure out how to operate within it. Instead, you're sort of trying and just, and then you it becomes about like trying to show that you're good enough and not just playing your game. As soon as you're trying to show show off and like make it clear that you should be there as opposed to playing your game and letting your game speak for you you're going to run into issues and that is sort of I think what happened with Fernando Torres yeah and when when some players when some big players fail there's an element of schadenfreude naturally within us but with Torres didn't you just want to give him a hug I mean, I was still terrified of him for, for how good he was. But yes, at the same time, it, it did feel, I mean, he's El Nino. He's, he's, he's the child. Like, it, you feel bad that he, he had this happen to him. And it seemed like he was a guy who was just sort of like happily scoring goals and wanted to just win and, and play some soccer. And di- I didn't feel like he had that sort of ruthlessness to him that maybe some global superstars seem to have, that sort of polished veneer. Uh, and so maybe that is why it was even more sort of, like uh, saddening for a person who has no real loyalty to Chelsea, but just to see a player like that really struggle and kind of fall to the wayside. Not the way we expected his career to go, I would say. 
Indeed. A little quote to finish off with the Torres section here. Chelsea was not good from the beginning for me. I did not find a team that suited me on the pitch, as we've kind of established. There was a good organisation off it, but the different personality of the team wasn't for me, even though I got what I wanted in winning trophies. I missed playing with Stevie and I missed playing for Liverpool. I thought a lot about the games with the team we had fighting together. It really meant something to me. Hmm. Yeah. So with those types of quotes, I have to say this. Like, I always wonder if that was really how he felt when he first walked in. Was he like, ah, like there's no Stevie here. I don't like this. Or is it in retrospect that they sort of like are like, actually, you know, I never really felt comfortable. Like, did they know it immediately or did they only know it after things went south? I'm going to guess hindsight's a wonderful thing in this situation. Uh, I will too, uh, and I will agree to that for the most part, except when it comes to my second worst transfer of all time, because it's Andy Carroll. And that felt like a move that even in the moment, we were all like, that's not a good idea. Uh, he moves uh, in uh, on deadline day, January 2011, uh, to replace Fernando Torres. Fernando Torres goes to Chelsea, uh, Andy Carroll comes in, it is Almost literally the final hour, I think he signs after 11 p.m. once uh, the fees are agreed. Liverpool initially offering $30 million, Newcastle holding out for 35 They mm-hmm. eventually get that. Carroll, for his part, immediately comes out and says, like, I, they, uh, Newcastle said, we only agreed to the fee once he sent us a transfer request. Carroll says, I didn't do that. I didn't want to leave. I was forced out. So right there, you have him sort of saying, like, I didn't want to leave. You all forced me out, but I guess I'll go play for Liverpool. Um, but he doesn't actually play for Liverpool because he shows up injured. Uh, he can't make his uh, debut until, I believe, March 6th. So yep. you already have, I think, and at the time, he's the most expensive uh, English player. Uh, I think now he's the third most expensive English player. So that shows you how much money that was and still is. Um, but you've got this player who's coming in to replace this marquee name in Fernando Torres. He then can't play when he first arrives. He's injured. Uh, and then when he does, it's really clearly square peg round hole that he does not fit what Liverpool are doing. It's similar to what happens with Christian Benteke a few years later. But it's, I think, for the the hype uh, surrounding the Fernando Torres move and the kind of speculation around, oh, is this going to lead to like a massive downturn in form for Liverpool? Are they going to sort of fall by the wayside? Are they really going to struggle? And then their response is to sign Andy Carroll. That doesn't really instill a lot of confidence. And we know now it shouldn't have because he didn't himself and he doesn't have the success. He eventually moves on for, I think, like 15 million to West Ham. So a 20 million pound loss there. Uh, And in between a lot of instability for Liverpool uh, that has certainly since been uh, uh, dealt with. But in the moment, it was definitely a reminder of how chaotic things can be and how really poorly run Liverpool were at the time. It's a good reminder of how things change. Definitely. I think square peg round holes a good way to put it because before that, let's remember, he was pretty devastatingly good yep. for Newcastle. He, he got them promoted. He scored 17 goals in the championship to bring them back up. Uh, in the first half of that uh, season before he was sold in January, he got another 11 goals as well. So it just seemed like it was, he just, he, he just didn't quite fit in. He was Liverpool. Uh, he was Liverpool's highest, uh, most expensive player at the time. Do you know who the one before that was? I do not. Uh, it was Luis Suarez who was signed. Ah, yes. Two hours earlier. That's okay. That was the other thing. I, I saw the photo of them being unveiled together, and I and I kept meaning to check that literally about 30 seconds ago. I was like, I should check that, but you'll hear me typing, and I don't want to mess up the recording. But that's the <laughs> other thing is, like, you look at the Suarez, and it's just like, okay, so they signed this future legend for the club who will go on to score amazing goals and almost wins them a title pretty much single-handedly. He has a little bit of help, but it's mostly Luis Suarez. And just how good he was, and you can see the idea. You can see, like, oh, we'll put Suarez and Carroll together. Carroll will win everything in the air. He'll knock it down for Suarez. Suarez will be the crafty runner and he'll score some goals. And yet, like, half of that was the case. But you can can just see the sort of 
idea there, but you can also see that it was rooted again in sort of football manager, FIFA. Oh, I'll put these two really good forwards together, even though their styles don't really mesh at all. But yeah. I'll do it and see what happens. And you can see how it didn't work out. It did not indeed. But it, that, that was the Torres money. 50 million, uh, 35 of it on Carroll and about 23 on Suarez. So, Man. I mean, they, they reinvested the money well, but not completely well, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. They, at least they didn't go the, the Spurs route. Spurs are not on my list, but Gareth Bale is sold, and they decide, why get one replacement for Gareth Bale when we can get nine that are almost as good, but not really? <laughs> How many of those in the, them are in the Chinese Super League right now? Several. 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 We're going to talk more about the Chinese Super League when we get to my number one. But first, Ryan, let's talk about your number one. My numero uno is a classic. It's Mr. Jonathan Woodgate, who went to Real Madrid. <laughs> In 2004, for the princely sum of 13.4 million pounds. Once again, this was 2004, 13.4 million pounds was a lot of money, and a lot of eyebrows were raised as to why Woodgate commanded that from Real Madrid. Um, I mean, he was a very good player, very good centre back. Let's not get, get uh, not be mistaken here, but he was also very, very injury prone. He mm. was so injury prone that he was injured when they signed him, and he still signed him. It took many, many months before he could play. His was, first it, game. was it a year? It was I 13 thought... months. It was 13 oh, months before he could first play his game, uh, first game for Real Madrid. And when he did, his debut came against Athletic Club, Athletic Bilbao. Uh-huh. Uh, famously, not only did he score an own goal, he got a red card for two Book of War fences. He, so, was a, he was applauded off by Real Madrid almost sympathetically, right? It was sort of like, it's okay, buddy. Like, well, you've had a hard time. Head up, but, shit up, do your best. I mean, let's think about the executive sitting there. We paid $13.4 million for this guy. Uh, we've waited 13 months for him to play. In his first game, he scores an own goal and gets a red card. I'm not sure this is going to work out. And duly, it did not work out. I think he had nine league appearances in Spain in the end. He did score a goal in the Champions League against Rosenberg. Congratulations for that one. Um, but his most prestigious award was that Marca, the Spanish newspaper, yep. uh, overwhelmingly voted him the worst signing of the 21st century. And that um, was in? That, 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 was, that was in, uh, I think, 2008. So the, the century wasn't that old, but still, that's <laughs> it really quite was an not. accolade. <laughs> still, still a big accolade, I would say. And I think it's a shame because Woodgate, not a bad player at all, very good. And when he did play, he was mm-hmm. quite good for Real Madrid. He rotated in with Ramos and Helguera and uh, Francisco Pavon, those kind of players. Just very, very unlucky with injuries and very, very, very unlucky with his debut. And um, after he left Madrid, he went back to his hometown club, Middlesbrough. Uh, I think it was on loan, and then he got a permanent deal. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up at Tottenham, where he scored the winning goal in the League Cup final in 2008, which remains Tottenham's only piece of silverware. Hey, there we go. Well done, Jonathan Woodgate. Um, I remember Woodgate because at the time I remember thinking, like, well, it must be nice at least that he's got – you know, like like medical professionals around him, and he's in a situation where he doesn't have to worry, and like instead can focus on like getting healthy. That must be really nice. And knowing what we know about Real Madrid now, and I'm sure in the moment it was like this, but like I just find myself wondering how quickly the front office soured on him, and how quickly mm. it went from like we're happy to have you here, like hope you're healthy soon, to just like toxic atmosphere. Oh, you're in here again. Oh, we can't stand you. Like, I can't imagine it took very long for it to go that way. And it's worth remembering that, what, he's there for three seasons, I think, 2004 to 2007. So, yeah, you got to imagine that he had some uh, awkward moments in the training room, for sure. Poor old Woody. 
Poor old say? Woody, indeed. Uh, well, my number one is uh, less sympathetic than yours. Uh, mine is Carlos Tevez mo- moving from Boca Juniors to Shanghai Shenhua. And yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably harsh to say it's the worst transfer of all time, but financially it probably is. Uh, he moves on a two-year deal. Weekly wages reported to be around $820,000. Again, that's a week, so forty to $42 million a year. Uh, it was a two-year deal, as I said. He made it one season. Uh, he said uh, his first thought on landing in China, when I landed, I realized that I wanted to go back to Boca. I was on vacation for seven months. Literally, <laughs> he was. Uh, he would uh, be out with injury, and then he was photographed uh, at Disneyland. Land in China, Disney World. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, with, it, with with his family, looking very confused as to why people would be photographing him. Uh, fairly obvious that you're Carlos Tevez uh, when you're in Disneyland in China, my friend. Um, <laughs> he was then criticized for it, like not supporting his teammates when when he was out with injury. He would sort of go on these family holidays. He wouldn't be there. He wouldn't really show up in training and work that hard. Uh, the owners eventually got annoyed. They vented their frustration about his behavioral injuries, lack of fitness. He responded. Uh, very like in a very like commiserating fashion, apologized. Just kidding, that's not what happened. He said Chinese footballers are not as naturally skilled uh, like South American or European players. Like players who learned football when they were kids, they're not good. Even in fifty years, they still won't be able to compete. End quote. So Tevez, uh, despite making forty to forty-two million dollars uh, a year, uh, cannot settle. Doesn't really seem interested in settling. Uh, Gus Poyet is the or Poyet, excuse me, is the manager at that time. They had a team barbecue. Tevez showed up. He didn't understand what the food was. He didn't like it. He wanted food that like was familiar to him. He didn't really get along with any of the players. He didn't make an attempt to kind of blend in. And like I understand that, but I also understand that if you're being paid that amount of money there is maybe that expectation of you got to make a little, at least a little bit of an effort and there's the shades of the Neymar at PSG thing of just like yeah. you're, you're welcome that I'm here and that should be enough and so he moves back to Boca he he has success there but then even then when he moves back he moves to Boca originally from Juve saying like basically like, I could be making more money but I'm here because I love this club and this is where I want to be and then he gets a massive offer and moves to China and then comes back and kind of does the same spiel again. It's a little a little Robbie Keane, uh, this is my boyhood club <laughs> sort of situation. But I think just for the amount of money he made, for the little effort on the field, I think he ends up scoring like four goals in total. He doesn't play that many games. Uh, Shanghai win their games in spite of him. They beat stronger opposition, uh, but like not with him on the field. I remember watching a game or watching a half of him and just being like, I don't know which one is him, aside from the one who looks mildly over weight because he was by all accounts very out of shape yeah i remember watching some highlights back in back then as well and it did seem like uh he was doing a lot of jogging and not a lot of running yeah uh, from what i remember watching of highlights of him there it seems like controversy really follows tevez around doesn't it because obviously he came to west ham in very very controversial circumstances Mm -hmm. to the extent that you know he saved them from relegation but Sheffield United felt very, very sore about that because of the uh, illegality of his transfer. Uh, yeah, and and then um, Manchester City, obviously, him going on strike and going I to play. I forgot golf about this. Because, I completely uh, forgot about that when he he refused to come off the bench. Uh, was it against Bayern Munich? I think it was for Mancini, um, and that did not sit well with me. I lost all respect mm-hmm. for him at that point. And this didn't come as a surprise when I realized he'd done this kind of move. Yeah, and I think he even moves uh, to West Ham from Corinthians in like very dramatic fashion. I think he says like I'll never play for this club again. Mm-hmm. So he has he has a lot of uh, of of baggage rolling with him wherever he goes. Maybe that's why he needed the forty two million so he could afford all that baggage and uh, bring it with him. Which <laughs> that's he did. a lot of baggage. So there you go. If we if we want to hug Fernando Torres when he's mm-hmm. uh, made a bad transfer, what do we want to do to Carlos Tevez? 
I, I, I don't know, ask him for money, I guess. <laughs> he's, got, he's got plenty of it. Man, I loved Carlos Tevez. I really did. I was sad when he – I was really sad when he, when he moved to the blue side of the city, and then it yeah. just went on from there. So, uh, yeah, maybe that's also a personal thing. Another uh, Man United player where they kind of failed to act and things went south. Yay! It's a recurring theme. It's a recurring theme. But those are my five for varying reasons. Not Again, not saying that they are – like definitively, this guy moved there and was awful. But it's more so a lot of the situations surrounding them, or what ended up happening, or how it all played out. Uh, but those are my five. One more time, they are Carlos Tevez uh, to Shanghai Shenhua, Bebe at Man United. Uh, then I had uh, Alfonso Aves to Middlesbrough, Andre Shevchenko to Chelsea, and Andy Carroll to Liverpool. Ryan, what were your five? One more time. My five to recap in at five: Stevie Gerrard to La Galaxy, <laughs> um, Neymar to uh, Paris Saint-Germain, Alex Sanchez, Alexis Sanchez to Manchester United, uh, Fernando Torres to Chelsea, and Johnny Woodgate to Real Madrid in two thousand. Johnny Woodgate. All right, Ryan Bailey. Well, thank you very much for talking uh, Premier League plans and Sea Land with me. Thank you for talking uh, worst transfers. We'll have another show next week. Maybe best transfers. Maybe something else entirely. We shall see. But for now, uh, thank you once again for taking the time away from uh, your family, who now I'm assuming uh, it is your shift. Uh, taking the time away from Tiger King, did you say? Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Yes, I apologize profusely <laughs> for that. Well, I'll get right back to that. Taylor, thank you very much as always. Always a pleasure. Never a chore.